don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds, we look back on what has been a landmark year for the Social Minds podcast. Yes, despite the fact that we've all been working remotely and recording every episode of Social Minds via Google Hangouts, we've spoken to some of the world's biggest brands, recording a total of 50 episodes, racking up over 190,000 minutes listened, and met 29 of the industry's best and brightest minds. So to refresh your memory, we'll be taking you through our personal favorite episodes from the last year and discussing the highlights and key takeaways from our guests. But before we get started, we'd like to say a special thank you to all of our guests for sharing their expertise with all of you on Social Minds. And of course, a huge thank you to all of you too for your continued support of the show. And don't forget to listen to the end of this podcast where we'll be sharing our top three tips for the year ahead. So without further ado, let's get started. Back in April of this year, we spoke with Omar Oaks from Campaign Magazine. And in this episode, episode 82 of Social Minds, we discussed how the industry responded to COVID-19 and lockdown, the problem with embracing wartime spirits, and how brands could find their place in all of this. We're in an age where people look at social media as above-the-line media. There's an opportunity to develop deep relationships with, frankly, smaller but more committed audiences. Yeah, no, I agree totally. And, I mean, a lot of brands are, are like doing things like Headspace is giving away some freebies. Is that the smart strategy, do you think, for brands? If these people can just hang in there and if they do the right thing right now, that when this is over, their money is coming right for them. I think it's easy for a big multinational corporation to do that to seek to build trust to offer free stuff but frankly this economy the way it's going to shake out there are going to be a lot of businesses that disappear and you're going to see big tech companies in particular get even bigger amazon facebook google they're going to be even bigger fish in a smaller pond if you like yes yeah, interesting to hear omar talk about this all the way back in april because he's exactly right we have seen many businesses struggle the longer this has gone on but even the major corporations like arcadia group which were just hanging on have become victims but he's right, social media companies and tech giants like Amazon, Facebook and Google have become even bigger this year. I mean, for me, one of the major talking points is social commerce, which I do think may be another lifeline for specific retailers that are digital first and that have built up an engaged following. Now, I know myself, I'm a sucker for Instagram ads. I mean, truth be told, it's never going to be a panacea for all brands, but I do think it could be a bit of a death knell for the high street, but who knows? Yeah, I agree. It's really interesting hearing him speak about that, knowing what we know now. And I think Omar was actually quite ahead of the game when he said, okay, freebies sound good, but that's easy for some people to do and it's not easy for others to do. And I think back then we were maybe expecting this to last a couple of months. Uh, And the longer it's gone on, obviously, we have started to see these businesses suffer. And that strategy of giving away things for free, just, you know, while it has its merits, just hasn't been sustainable. So people have had to find brands, I should say, have had to find other ways to earn people's loyalty throughout this time. Later on in April, we had the pleasure of speaking with Will Skoogle, ex-head of brand strategy at Twitter, and at the time of recording, Snap Inc.'s global director of creative strategy. On this episode, we spoke all about how Snapchat has gone from dancing hot dogs to championing one of the biggest AR communities in social, why Snap is determined to democratize AR, and how brands, advertisers, and publishers should approach creating augmented reality experiences. I equate it to the same question that people ask you, like, what kind of music do you like? It really depends on your mood, where you are, 
what time of day it is, you know, what you're into at that moment. And I think it's the same with AR because AR is, it's a really personal experience. When you launch augmented reality and you scan it, it's your world and it's your face and it's your friends. The ones that perform best answer that really simple question, how am I contributing to the experience? What's my objective? And how am I going to realize that objective by contributing to the experience that people are looking for on Snapchat and through augmented reality? And I, I think that that can be, you know, a number of different things. It's, is the lens simple and playful? Is the lens something that offers utility and that am I helping people to try on my new product or am I helping them to understand its value in a new and interesting way? Is this augmented reality experience something that is transportative and takes people to a place that's, you know, magical and, and different and that tells a story? How am I asking them to, to act on that? When we think about how brands should think about making their lens something that, that's successful for them, it starts with their objective and the people. When we come to think about augmented reality, it can seem daunting or complex if you haven't worked in it before, but the fundamentals of strategy and planning and creative are still the same. This has to be one of my favorite episodes of the year. I mean, speaking to Snapchat was a dream come true for us. And I have to say, hearing the inner workings of the platform from their perspective and getting a feel for what they see as priority really makes you appreciate it more as a marketing platform. AR can be quite an obscure concept similar to VR. And it's quite hard to make that connection between, you know, seeing a technology like that and hearing about it and then actually learning how it can apply to brands and to marketing and things that brands are creating already and taking that to the next level. But hearing Will speak about it, you know, with such passion and in such detail, for me gave it that extra context that it was missing. And I came away from this episode, honestly, with a newfound respect for AR and for Snapchat, which is a platform that we haven't always given enough lip service to in the past, but I think absolutely deserves to be commended for the work that they're doing, innovating in areas like augmented reality. Yeah, I completely agree with you. This was a fascinating episode and definitely one of my favorites from the year. I think uh, the main point for me, which I was really interested in, was when Will was talking about utility. Because I remember around about that time, especially with the pandemic, we saw a lot of useful content coming out of Snapchat in terms of AR. So for the first time, we were seeing how AR could be adapted beyond just entertainment purposes and for utility as well, and for actual real useful information and signposting. Yeah, definitely. Next up, we discuss social media's role in saving the planet with two guests working for WWF, Alice Mora Farrell, the acting head of Global Digital, and Holly Kay, the social account manager. We learned how COVID-19 was impacting WWF's messaging around climate change and animal welfare, how not to be toned deaf, and what trends we could see among younger audiences engaging with sustainability and the environment. Anybody can join in and there's so much creativity from people in terms of how they're viewing, you know, not just our messages, but messages in general about sustainability and climate change. I think that TikTok is going to be a key platform for the environmental conversation. I think the way that especially a younger audience want to use social is um, they want to use it immersively. They want to create their own content and TikTok allows you to create content in your own immediate environment. And I think that's so important for social media moving forward, having that sophisticating video editing suite kind of just at your fingertips where you don't need to go to a certain location to create your content means that it's so inclusive and so many more people can be involved. And I think we're definitely seeing a trend with younger audiences of wanting to talk about things they're passionate about, whether that's politics, environment, climate, and they want to use social to do that. And I think TikTok provides an amazing opportunity for people to do that. 
Yeah, what an insightful conversation we had with Alice and Holly earlier this year. And they couldn't have been more accurate with their thoughts on TikTok in relation to the climate crisis. I mean, one of the things we've seen over the past year is the rise of educational content on TikTok, which is something we've been talking about a lot on this podcast. I mean, it can be said that perhaps conversations have not been as prevalent due to the pandemic. What I mean by that is a lot of brands have shifted their social responsibility focus. But I've been impressed by those brands like Patagonia who have continued to be top of mind. They brought out a great ad earlier this year, which was sort of a reverse poem. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was urging people not to give up on the climate fight. And I mean, it would be interesting to see if brands go back to that line of messaging post-pandemic. Yeah, I agree. We haven't seen as much discussion about climate activism, but their point on activism, especially on platforms like TikTok, has definitely aged well. It's definitely held up. When we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, response to how governments have been handling the pandemic. Young people are using platforms like TikTok to speak up about what they believe in because it's such an open platform to discuss with people that you don't know, that you don't already follow. So I was so impressed to see how ahead of the curve WWF were on platforms like TikTok and really just goes to show what with everything we know now and everything they said in that episode, how much brands can actually get from using platforms like that and understanding how to engage younger audiences with important issues like this. In June, we sat down with paid social media manager Kat Sameta, who used to work at Domino's, but who now works at Great Ormond Street Hospital. In this episode, we discussed the future of TikTok as it ramped up its appeal to paid marketers, the race for more creative solutions in paid social, and the meaning behind incrementality testing. Basically, it's a methodology that challenges this kind of last-click attribution model where you get given credit for a sale on the last marketing interaction. So, for example, you might see a Facebook ad. That person then goes away, opens up the app, closes the app, and then later on, they go to Google and they type in the brand and they click through and then they make a purchase. What was it that actually drove that intent? It was probably seeing the Facebook ad, but because of the way an attribution model is set up traditionally, you're going to give that credit to Google. Is it? Is that so incrementality testing is a way of trying to help you answer the question what would happen if i never showed this advert so the way it works is you take a hypothesis so it could be does facebook as a channel drive incremental orders what you do is then you create a campaign where you have a test and a control group so one group will see your ad and one group won't and then what you do once the campaign is finished is you compare the conversions between the two groups and you measure the uplift in sales I mean, I don't know about you, Theo, but in this episode, I actually learned a lot myself because I haven't dealt in paid social in about three years. So it was fascinating to hear what works and what doesn't these days and hear Kat talk about all of these strategies and processes in such detail. Now, we talked a lot, not just about how to target people correctly, but also how to measure the success of a campaign or a post and really understand where your customers are coming from, which I think is one of the biggest mysteries in organic social. Now, page really opens up a whole new side to it. And for me, this is where social marketing can really prove itself as a sophisticated and effective tool for marketing. It goes past awareness at this point and becomes a really valuable sales channel. And of course, for Kat's experience at Domino's, it was so interesting to hear how they use paid social for that particular audience. But to be honest, the lessons that we learned in this episode, I would say are applicable to any brand. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you've said there. I mean, I've probably worked in the industry, the social chain for probably about four years. And one of the biggest changes over the year in terms of social media has been that level of attribution, that level of targeting and the sophisticated sort of tools that are available to you. And it's great to see that social has matured in a way that CMOs have taken notice or took notice long ago and are realizing that they can track sales and can track attribution in a way that's uh, not too similar to other channels. 
The next guest on our roster today was Michael Lee, creative director at Oatly. And we spoke to Michael, who joined us all the way from Denmark, about the importance of tone of voice and language, having a creative license to do anything, and the responsibility that brands have to society. More and more, this trend towards transparency, this trend towards accountability, and in our case, sustainability, these are things that just point to a responsibility that we have to society. And in many ways, I think that companies and businesses have kind of hid behind the fact of what's the point of a business? The point of a business is to turn a profit, is to increase shares for shareholders. And in many ways, I think that feeling is a bit antiquated. It's not enough. Companies and brands are, are part of society, just as individuals are. We have platforms to affect change. So I don't think it, it is enough to stand by the sidelines and just watch the world go by. Yeah, I mean, this was another fascinating episode. I'm sure you'll agree, Eve, especially for us as copywriters. I mean, ironically, this uh, episode came out not long after Oatly's big Above the Line campaign, where they were using a lot of slogans and a lot of tone and language. And one of the things that I took away from this podcast was definitely about the fact that when you peer behind the personality and all the upfront sort of tone of voice stuff, there was actually that genuine brand message there, that genuine sort of uh, activism and that we've become to know only for. Yeah, I have to say this one was a highlight for me as well, especially because of the focus that we placed on tone of voice and language and Oatly is as renowned as innocent these days as it is for its billboard campaigns and its tone of voice and its copy. It's very interesting hearing now their stance on sustainability and accountability, considering the sort of backlash that they had earlier this year and how they've dealt with that. And I think it definitely goes to show, you know, how important these things are and that, you know, a brand like Oatly can go through that themselves. But it's really important how you then deal with it and the way that you handle these situations. So yeah, definitely one of my favorites of the year. Now into the second half of 2020, we dialed in with David Hill from ACAS, who used to work at Spotify. In this episode, David taught us about how people's behavior with podcasts began to change following COVID, how Spotify would recuperate the money it spent on Joe Rogan's podcast, and the issues around discoverability. You've just got to pick something you're passionate to do. And I think if you're passionate and you can talk with authority and share that knowledge back with people who really appreciate what they're learning from you and what they get, how it helps them, how it makes them feel, then you will succeed within that vertical that you are in. Now, if it's super niche, it's only ever going to be a few thousand people who listen to you. But if you manage to get a few thousand in a really niche vertical, then that means you're a massive success. I mean, considering how much podcasts grew over lockdown and throughout the pandemic, this felt like a very timely episode then. And it was so interesting to hear at the time which topics and which sectors were gaining in popularity. And even more so when we listen back now that we know more. I mean, so many people have used this time to start their own podcast. And hearing from someone in the heart of a company like ACAS really is invaluable, even for our show, which is over two years old now. I mean, I feel like we learned more about how to make your show more interesting and what people want to listen to. But the highlight for me with this episode was definitely the data that he was able to share with us that came from ACAST. I mean, we can talk about trends and speculate on our opinions, but you can't argue with the data. So seeing what people were doing and what everyone was listening to laid out in numbers, I found really fascinating. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Eve. That was a really, really interesting episode. And I think podcasting is one of those areas where you often can look at your own consumption and sort of make assumptions about how people are listening, especially this year with the pandemic, where 
pretty much you can draw a line between what people have been doing and you know with commuting times out of the window and people not really going to work completely we saw differences in the times that people listen to podcasts and consumption rates and all different areas of that so this was a really really interesting episode i think for that just to get a general barometer of where podcasting consumption is at and how it's been affected naturally In our 100th episode of Social Minds, we spoke to the head of influence at Ogilvy, Rahul Titus. Now, Rahul had so many useful tips and insights for anyone working within influencer marketing, including why it's up to us to address the issues of mistrust, the measures that brands can put in place to ensure real ROI from their influencer campaigns, and the two big trends that will excite both marketers and creators going forward. Because again, people assume influence e-com just means putting paid media behind influencer campaigns and seeing how well they convert. There's so much more to that. There's literally so much more to that. And I think brands should really spend the time to understand how these platforms are allowing influencers to basically set up shop and actually sell and sell on behalf of you. And again, first movers advantage. Brands that are doing it right now are the brands that are going to be much more advanced in two years time, three years time. So if you're not really looking at influence-based e-com, look at it now. It is changing and changing very fast. And if you're not basically part of that first sweep of brands doing it, you are going to miss out. There's no doubt about it. Yes, so many important lessons from that episode with Rahul and much of what he was saying as well. I mean, it was at the time where influencer marketing had gone through this sort of shift. And I mean, it is always changing, but we'd seen the rise of influencers with their own brands and bringing out new lines and then becoming a much bigger part of the conversation. Not only that, but also influencer marketing sort of annexing itself from marketing in a way and becoming its own vertical within itself, a a major, major billion dollar industry that is so multifaceted and so nuanced in many ways. So a lot of what Rahul was saying was, you know, really take the time to get to know influencers and how they fit into your business, because they're not just an amplification strategy as we've seen them as before. There is so much to be said for baking them into the start of a campaign, for getting their creative lead on your creative work, and for really just approaching influencer marketing in a much more, I don't want to say authentic, but a much more strategic way rather than just lumping paid behind creators. For me, this episode was what I would consider a real deep dive on influencer marketing. I mean, I don't know about you, Theo, but every time I try to read something about influencer marketing, It's either far too basic, as in the person writing it doesn't really understand it themselves, or it assumes that everyone knows what you're talking about. So it glosses over the details. For me, Raffle was really able to explain in simple terms how important influencer marketing is and how it can be applied and what the effects will be if you get it wrong. I think he did a brilliant job of laying everything out simply so that everybody could understand it. Because, you know, even though, as you said, we have seen influencer marketing take hold of social commerce, other areas of e-commerce, you know, various campaigns, all platforms, and it's really not that new anymore. I do feel like this industry as a whole can still treat it as a new thing. And maybe there's a lot of brands out there that still really need to get to grips with the ins and outs. So I thought Rahul was absolutely brilliant at explaining that. Next, we're joined by YouTube's culture and trends lead, Roya Zutuni, whose job it is to track some of the platform's biggest trends. In this episode, she revealed how YouTube's trending page reflected how our needs changed throughout the pandemic on a truly global scale, the impact of YouTube on culture, broadcasting, celebrity, and discoverability, and what you can learn about your audience with these insights. We've got such a wealth of choice of everything that we want to consume that people are really discerning about what it is that they, they choose to spend their time with. So authenticity really matters. And actually, on a 
platform like YouTube, it matters all the more. If you try and portray yourself in a way that it doesn't reflect reality, people sniff it out really fast. And mm. so it's totally true that that presents a really challenging position for brands because they don't want to be seen to be jumping on a bandwagon. As an example, I don't know if you're familiar with a YouTube creator from the US called Emma Chamberlain, but she's had a phenomenal growth over the last, not that long actually, over the last couple of years or so. Her content is very, very raw and um, relatable. She almost edits in her mistakes, even though she's really established now, she still has a very informal style, etc. She's, you know, she burps on video, she shows herself <laughs> when she's just woken up, her hair undone, no makeup on, like really the, the kind of anti-Instagram type of approach. But, you know, her audience have really, really loved it. And there are countless examples like that. But the reason why I call her out is actually she was chosen to, to be the face of Louis Vuitton, which, you know, is a, a really like old school, snooty French fashion house, oh. the reputation, which has been around for, you know, over 100 years and very much you'd imagine the antithesis of what she represents. But actually, they were like, we need to understand that the world is different now. Again, this episode was another of my favorites from the air, and not just because we'd been planning to speak to Roy for so long, so it was so good to finally have her on the show. But for me, similar to our episode with Acast, it was so interesting to see the data that YouTube managed to pull from the pandemic and what content everyone has been watching. And having it all the same worldwide, I think, is what I found the most interesting. I mean, that data is something that we've used in talks since then. And it is just amazing to see the truly global impact because YouTube is such a universal platform. It was also so good to hear about how YouTube sorts its trending page because that has been a mystery for quite some time. And actually how useful that page is for brands just as a research tool, you know, similar to how brands use Reddit to find out what people are talking about. The trending page is a really good indication of what everyone's watching in your area. And it isn't something that is commonly done, but, you know, listening to Roya talk about it kind of feels like a no brainer now for video marketers, especially. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Eve. And you're, you're totally right. A lot of the YouTube data that we've received and we saw following uh, Roya's episode, we have started using talks, particularly with the pandemic. I mean, seeing the explosion of that with me content, which I wasn't aware of before, but totally am now. And also just the need space, something that I've talked about a lot is uh, people sort of seeking out their needs and seeking out educational content on YouTube and where brands can really play into that. So branded content. So like, you know, the gardening brands that could go on YouTube and sort of target gardeners with sort of how to do various uh, garden tasks and stuff. So that's been exceptionally interesting. And I think really shows the cultural relevance of YouTube and just the enormity of the platform. Mm, I completely agree with you there. At the end of summer, we were joined by TikTok's Managing Director of Global Business Solutions, Inam Mahmood, and Abby Clark, a stand-up comedian who shot to fame on the platform over lockdown. Between the two of them, they told us all about how TikTok's algorithm really works, how brands can find legitimate creators to partner with on TikTok, and which features on TikTok set it apart from other social platforms. One of the unique things about the platform, you know, being full screen, sound on, that enables brands to have a very sort of different way of telling a story. 
I think here it opens up a new sort of level of kind of emotional connection and that in itself presents a really kind of interesting opportunity and we've seen sort of those brands that have leaned in thinking about how to create bespoke music how to think about the sound how to really take advantage of that full screen immersive experience I think that's a really interesting challenge from a creative standpoint right and also from a point of how do you tell your story so in summary and, and wrapping up I think we've talked about it already but I can't stress enough if there's one thing uh, your listeners leave remembering today it's don't make ads make TikToks welcome people into your brand enjoy the rich storytelling and creativity that is possible with everything we offer and I can't stress this enough have fun this is a place for positivity and joyful moments uh, so just have fun with it <laughs> I totally agree with Inam. It's, uh, it's, it's about having fun and joining in and also acknowledging that there's space for you already. People are already making videos with your brand in. The amount of times I get asked where my Topshop jeans are from in videos, not about jeans. I just wear them and people are like, where are your jeans from? And I'm like, where is Topshop on TikTok? <laughs> people want to know. People want to know what you're wearing. People want to know what they're seeing. Why not be there and use that? People want to know which eyelash glue she's wearing. So why aren't you there taking advantage of that, basically? Yes, I mean, two incredibly talented guests there in Abby and in um, The funny thing is, I've actually seen Abby more and more on uh, TikTok as I've been scrolling through the feed and, uh, you know, can say she's hilarious. But the point she was making is so fascinating, so interesting here and so prevalent as well. I mean, with the brand Topshop in a perfect example brands that should be on tiktok that everybody who would expect them to be on tiktok actually not being on the platform and i mean talking about the platform this is the one part of social media that just sums up social first creativity to me i think the level of creativity on there from creators from everyday people it's really sort of pushed everything into a new realm and brands have definitely had to up their game on the back of that I'm glad to see that so many in the bumps that we've spoken to have actually done that. And we're now seeing more unexpected brands on TikTok and unexpected demographics as well. As we covered in this episode, it's not just a Gen Z and millennial platform. It really does touch all parts of society. Yeah, that's so spot on. I mean, this episode was such a highlight being able to speak not just with someone so close to the inner workings of TikTok in Inam, but speaking to Abby as well and having that different perspective, I think added so much to enrich that conversation. And again, to Abby's points, you know, Inam can talk all day about, you know, the opportunities that are there for brands. But if we compare it to say a platform like Instagram, where we're always talking about how brands can sort of pretend that they're not too brandy so that they can speak to people and they won't get annoyed. The reception on TikTok seems to be polar opposite, probably because it's so new and because the kind of creative you're going to make is naturally going to be a bit more fun than just a classic advert. Classic ads don't do well there, hence the whole, you know, make TikToks, not ads. But what Abby was saying about brands actually being welcome and being a necessary part of that conversation because they're already being spoken about and not saying it in the kind of tone of voice where it's like, oh, like brands can do this, but we don't really want them there. It really feels like somewhere brands can really get involved in. And if there's anything that we've learned after all of its growth this past year, it's that it's definitely worth exploring and it's not going anywhere. And Topshop as well, such a key example there from Abby. I mean, especially considering some of the criticism they've received in recent times that they haven't adapted quick enough to the social media age. And they are a brand that you would have expected to be on TikTok. I mean, I'm not sure if they are now, but certainly at the time when we were speaking to Abby, I think, you know, her answer was telling, you know, where are these brands who are not yet on TikTok, but who clearly have a place on the platform. Next up, we're joined by David Greiner, Adweek's creative and innovation editor, who after recording, kindly asked Eve to be a judge for Adweek's podcast of the Year Awards 2020. 
In this episode, we discussed what makes a memorable campaign, whether it's possible to penetrate Adweek's pages with a well-timed tweet or TikTok trend, and what the top writers in advertising are looking for from brands today. We want to see a good idea, and we want to see an idea that gets people thinking and feeling and sharing. I think the biggest thing that's changed for people who've been in advertising for quite a while is that we no longer fetishize craft. I love to see a great idea executed flawlessly, right? That's as good as it gets. But if I have to have one or the other, I'd rather have a great idea executed swiftly, nimbly, in a way that's really relevant to culture than to have one that's perfectly executed, but kind of mediocre or even worse these days, late. And I always say, you know, it's better to be first and pretty good than to be seventh and perfect because people are just done listening to a clever idea by the time it's been iterated six, seven times. This episode was such a must listen for everyone. It's one of those where the advice is truly universal because every brand has an interest in getting their ads featured in trade press. I absolutely loved hearing about what Adweek looks for in an ad and what they deem feature worthy and also how that's changed over the years, especially to be more inclusive of social. For me, it was really apparent from what David said that it's being taken so much more seriously in the industry than it once was. And now tweets and TikToks are sitting alongside full budget TV spots on the front page of Adweek. I also found our discussion about agencies' relationships with their clients fascinating. And I think that there is a lot to be learned there from both agencies and brands about how we can all get the most out of these partnerships and make them truly mutually beneficial. Yes, I remember David Griner's episode, especially for his line that people working in advertising or people writing about advertising, I should say, are no longer looking for campaigns that fetishize on craft. And I think that is such an important lesson within social media because we haven't got the time to fetishize over craft. We can't have six, seven iterations of a clever idea. It is a reactive space and reactive wins, as uh, David mentioned. So it was great to hear what would some would probably deem as maybe a sort of advertising establishment and a magazine that's been around for so long, actually uh, holding that view of social media and the need to be reactive and the need to be quick, fast and interesting. In September, we were joined by Dom Boyd, Managing Director of the market research company Kantar and previously of Adam and Eve DDB, to discuss why advertising needs to find its sense of humor again, what the data tells us about a collective change in tone, and how comedy from brands differs between mediums. I would sort of look to history in order to embrace the present and the future. And what history says is that humor works. Okay, humor is one of the most powerful creative weapons you've got. Trying to play safe and do the right thing is probably the most dangerous strategy that there is. Because no one will see you, no one will notice you, no one will care, no one will do anything as a result. Emotion is the most powerful way to create behavioral change. And humor is the sharpest elements of creating emotion. So I think the riskiest thing you can do is overthinking things. The best thing you can do is go with your gut and get a really good gut reaction for something that makes you feel something. Yes, I mean, as somebody whose favourite adverts are all funny adverts from the 90s and 2000s, this uh, really, really resonated with me, this episode. But me and Eve had a discussion after this episode as well, I remember, and it was interesting because we were talking about whether this is an above-the-line problem, you know, a lack of humour in adverts, because we often see on social media humour being one of those key drivers and being a major consideration for people, especially among content creators who may be better at doing it. I mean, earlier on in the year, I sort of criticized the fact that brands were doing funny stuff. I didn't think it was the right time, given that we're in pandemic. 
But I've since changed my stance on that after sort of realizing that humor is one of those collective things that we do need, that we do as the public share a kind of need for and want for, and especially in advertising as well. It is so prevalent and so important. So it was interesting to see from his perspective that humor is maybe on a downturn. And hopefully that's not the case going forward. Hopefully we do get the funny back, not just in above the line marketing, but all areas of marketing. Yeah, I agree. I think this episode definitely resonated for that reason. And, you know, if anything is to be learned from our own social minds results, it resonated with a lot of you guys as well. I think especially this year, the discussion and debate around should comedy be used by brands, especially in times like this, seem to be quite divided and quite polarized. Theo, you just said you just changed your mind on it. And I agree. I've I've been torn seeing some brands pull it off so well and some brands really crash and burn. And I think it's one of those, it just has to be down to personal preference. When we spoke to KFC, he said, you know, we're funny because we're not cancer research. So it really is learning like your audience and the right tone and just being able to read the room and, you know, knowing when comedy is okay and knowing when it's not. But I agree with the data that Dom walked us through. It is a little bit upsetting to me to see it take such a downward curve. And especially when we look at it being replaced almost entirely by purpose-driven marketing and cause marketing, which while it has its place, I think shouldn't overtake creativity as a whole. So hopefully brands took something away from Don's episode and feel a little bit better about maybe bringing some comedy back into their adverts. In this episode, we spoke to Toa Dunn, the head of Riot Music Group, who's in charge of all things music when it comes to Riot Games hero titles, such as League of Legends. We spoke about how to use music in your content to create emotional narratives, why in-game concerts are the future of events and even influencer marketing, and how major music artists are using video games to reach their audience. In general, as humans, being sold something just doesn't always feel great, right? There's a resistance to that. But if you can find a way that you're adding value versus potentially, quote unquote, taking value from them, right? If they feel like, oh man, like this makes whatever it is that I'm experiencing better, that's the five head to me because then it's more valuable than an ad. Those are the things I'm excited about is finding creative ways to integrate better. Like that to me is where you get partnerships. That's where you get that type of stuff, right? Where it's like, oh, it's not just a transaction. Like this is a partnership. This is a collaboration. And you look for those ways of deep integration. And that's something that we've tried our best to hold ourselves to. For the longest time, League of Legends didn't have ads or real sponsors. Putting ourselves in the lens of players, like being sold stuff just doesn't feel good. And, you know, just slapping a logo here in the game or around the game just didn't feel great. And so we're like, we want to find that way, the ones who want to partner with us to integrate and to create an ad value for our players and viewers. I think this episode had to be the most sort of non-social episode that we've done yet. Perhaps minus uh, the hacks at home we did with Chris Williamson. But I really enjoyed it for that reason. Gaming especially is such a huge talking point in so many industries right now. So of course, it will go far beyond social. And the things that Riot Games is doing with in-game concerts and how they're merging these brand sponsorships with live music shows and then bringing it into gaming and there's elements of influencer marketing, which they then promote on social, sort of all in one. It does really feel like the future of brand marketing and this sort of collaboration between different sectors and specialisms to create more of a virtual experience that benefits everyone. I mean, especially when you think about how many different touch points there are here and how many opportunities there are with something like an in-game event or an in-game concert for brands to get involved or influencers to get involved and benefit off of one another, especially since the pandemic, what with all events either being cancelled 
cancelled or moved online. This, for me, is such a smart and futuristic approach that I bet we'll see a lot more of going forward. Yeah, I do agree there, Eve. And I get the feeling a lot of marketers who don't work in this space can sometimes find gaming as being a bit overfacing. But I think it is one of those areas like influencer marketing where you really, really just have to get to grips with it and do your research in this space because it is such a massive space and such a massive opportunity to make a big impact. I mean, I've been blown away by some of the in-game event stuff that I've seen before. So like Travis Scott appearing in Fortnite and even Riot Games' own content that they've been putting out. And speaking to Toa, realizing the size of this world that exists within gaming and all different facets of it was incredibly fascinating. And I really, really do recommend checking out the Riot Games guys and some of the stuff they've done on YouTube. In one of our final episodes of the year, we were joined by Harold Clayet, Reddit's VP and President of Global Advertising, who previously worked at Pinterest and Google. We talked about the opportunities for advertisers on Reddit, what makes Reddit's audience so unique, and how it's tackling brand safety concerns. I get brand safety, right? You're a company, you're a brand, and you've invested a lot of time and effort to make sure that your brand is associated with what you want it to be. Not to dodge the question, but I think this is not a Reddit thing only, right? I think for many social platforms, right, this is potentially a challenge or not, right? And every social platform will have a different way in how they make sure that brands feel comfortable about how they approach it. So I won't speak on behalf of you know my, my peer companies, but for Reddit, based on our discussions with advertisers, the processes, the tools, the teams, and the systems that we've put in place really help them. I understand brand safety is a concern. I think it's also a bit of a misconception or misunderstanding on Reddit. We have overarching Reddit rules in place, right? So kind of like our policies, about hate speech or other things that are going on. Then on the next level, we have communities and within communities, we have moderators and moderators are of course really checking all the discussions and making sure that these are healthy. But most importantly, also the communities actually check themselves. They're upvoting and downvoting comments. And we've seen that communities really regulate themselves very well by downvoting things that just don't fly and really upvoting things that are positive and contribute to that conversation. Yeah, I mean, whenever you get a platform on the podcast, it is a major coup, isn't it? And I mean, this for me was one of the biggest, being a, a real Reddit fan as of a few recent years ago. This was a really, really cool episode with Harold and everything he was saying about brand safety there. It's interesting because Reddit is one of those platforms that sometimes gets tarred with this kind of brand safety message because parts of Reddit are quite risque. But actually, if you go on the platform and you sort of have a look around, you can see what some of, you know, give credence to what a lot of Harold is saying. In the sense that it does regulate itself, there is a lot of police in there. Of course, there are corners of the platform that are sort of, you know, not healthy as they are with other platforms. But I think for the brands that are on Reddit, there's definitely that kind of irreverent kind of tone of voice and theme to content. And I think it's a really, really interesting space for brand campaigns. Another thing as well, I was surprised to hear from Harold how sort of receptive Redditors are to advertising as long as it sort of fits with the theme of what's going on and that it is naturally authentic. I agree completely. This was definitely a standout episode for me as well. And I'll say it now, Reddit as a platform is my official one to watch for 2021. I mean, not only have they now expanded into the UK, they're finally in a position where they're able to really expand their ad offering. And just recently they acquired Dub Smash, obviously, which means or very, um, very greatly hints at the fact that they will probably 
be adding video creation tools to Reddit, which could completely change the game. You know, when Harold tells us things like Reddit's audience can't be found on other platforms, or at least the majority of them can't, that to me says everything about the value of this platform, and especially its likenesses with TikTok where the communities are so niche and so specific. But for the same reason that people use Facebook groups and brands are able to reach people there, it is the best place, I think, for brands to be able to have those conversations that are so specific to what the brand does and knowing that people already care about it. So, I mean, my advice for anyone listening, if you're not already exploring Reddit as a brand channel, then you absolutely should be because I think we're about to see it do some really, really good things. And just a few weeks ago, we spoke to John Hutchings, the social media executive for KFC UK and Ireland, to talk about creating a brand personality that resonates, the difference between Twitter and TV tone of voice, and why putting awareness before direct sales marketing is beneficial. Your organic feed is just buy this product, buy this product, use our service. People aren't going to engage with it, yeah. and rightly so. Why would you? You know, no, no, no one's going to slap you in the back and say, "Great ad, mate. Well done. I love this tweet." What a way to end the year. Having a brand like KFC on Social Minds was such a landmark moment. Obviously, they are iconic for their marketing, both online and on social. And for a Twitter enthusiast like myself, it doesn't get more valuable than being able to speak to someone like John on what goes into a solid Twitter strategy. Having a personality and a sense of humor is something that we talk about a lot and something a lot of brands know they should be doing more of. And yet no brand, in my opinion, has been able to execute that personality on social as well as KFC has. And with them, it's not just a piece of advice anymore. It's actually a proven success story. Obviously, not every brand can be a KFC, but I do hope that people came away from this episode feeling a bit braver and a bit more adventurous and confident enough to try and escape that comfort zone. Because as we've seen, all that comfort zone really does is lead to dry content that people, as John said, just aren't going to engage with. I mean, yeah, I have to agree with a lot of that, what you've said there, Eve. I mean, for me as a copywriter, KFC is definitely one of the brands that I'm so envious of in terms of uh, their Twitter activity, because they are so just on the nail and so culturally relevant and so interesting that they are you know, definitely up there with some of the best brands on Twitter, I'd have to say. And their marketing reflects that as well, not just their sort of day-to-day kind of content on Twitter, but their bigger campaigns as well. You can really see the intrigue there that they're able to generate beyond the product and how they acted in lockdown and some of the marketing stuff they put out. So like it became a sort of thing to kind of try and make your own version of KFC and your own fried chicken and how they tapped into that after. I thought that was really, really entertaining. And yeah, like you said, Eve, I hope a lot of people listened to that and did just start to think a bit, you know, let's be a bit braver. Let's take a bit of a chance because I think audiences are more forgiving than people realize, you know, unless you do something completely real out of the pale (laughs) unless you're donald trump so that's a wrap on social minds for 2020 but don't worry to tide you over until the new year our top tips for you are keep using data and research to monitor audience trends as the pandemic continues to change our behavior whatever you do don't be afraid to be funny and keep a close eye on reddit and tiktok thank you again to everyone for listening we have some amazing guests lined up for the new year including amazon prime video made.com and beauty bay to name a few have a lovely break and we'll see you in january thank you for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please remember to leave us a review on itunes because it really really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week this has been the social minds podcast with myself theo watts Eve Young and produced by Ollie Thompson. Absolutely smashed it. Woohoo! Yeah, boy!